The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading is Mark 7, 17-23. When he went into the house, away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing goes into a person from the outside that can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach, and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Let's turn to Mark 7 in your Bibles. I want to begin with three scenarios, one from church, one from sort of home life, and one individual. I want you to think about what all three have in common. So here's scenario number one. This one actually comes from a recent news story about a Catholic priest in Arizona that's been saying the wrong word during baptism for the past 25 years. Instead of saying, I baptize you, he's been saying, we baptize you. Catholic leadership has determined that the thousands of baptisms he performed are all invalid. And since in Catholic doctrine, baptism is the first sacrament, which opens the door for the rest of the sacrament, that means that those who are baptized incorrectly may need to repeat other subsequent um, sacraments, which include communion, holy orders, and marriage. Just imagine that conversation over the dinner table. Honey, so I learned today our marriage is invalid because the priest who baptized me 25 years ago used the wrong pronoun. Here's scenario number two. Jim and Susan don't know what to do. Their sweet little girl has slowly morphed into a sullen, angry teenager who defies Every rule they make, every time they break, she breaks a rule, they tighten the reins even more, but nothing's working, nothing is getting through to her. The more rules they make, the more rules she breaks. At this point, they don't know what else to take away from her because everything she cares about has already been taken away from her and nothing seems to make a difference. Scenario number three. William has never been more frustrated and ashamed. He looked at pornography again. He hates it. He doesn't want to do it. He keeps putting things in place to stop it, but he can't seem to resist the temptation. He, when he does give in a temptation, he feels physically sick. He's tried every internet filter and accountability software that he can find, but he knows how to get around them. None of them are perfect. In those moments of temptation, he finds the vulnerability. As far as he can tell, there's no other solutions. He's exhausted every option. So what do these three scenarios have in common? In all three scenarios, and a thousand other just like them, people are trusting rules to do what rules cannot do. So in the first scenario, rules are thought to be the primary way to please God. If we say the right things, keep the right traditions, God will then favor us with his grace. In scenarios two and three, rules are considered to be a way to change behavior to stop a person from sinning. Now, we all naturally look at rules in one of two ways. The first way, which we all sort of start here, is we look at rules as the primary way to please God. If we can do a good enough job keeping the rules, then God will be pleased. 
So most people live their entire lives hoping they've done just, just good enough, at least, that God will be okay with how they've kept his rules. Now, the second way is what happens when someone realizes they're really bad at keeping rules. So if you fail enough at keeping the rules, then why bother? Right? Why bother if the rules seem impossible and you just constantly fail? If you've already broken them and can't seem to keep yourself from breaking them, why not just then embrace it? See, the natural bent of our hearts is towards legalism, which is just a fancy religious word to describe how we view God and rules. We think keeping the rules is what pleases God. And so we're convinced that what the big need we have is just to do a little better job, a little greater faithfulness to keeping God's rules. But if we're at all honest, if we're at all self-aware, then we realize that's not working. It's not working. Trying harder, just trying a little bit harder to keep the rules isn't working for you. And here's why. Because your rules can't fix what is broken inside. Your rules can't fix what is broken inside you. Now we've, we've seen so far in our study of the Gospel of Mark that one of the things Mark is, is attempting to do here is he's helping Christians figure out what it means to follow Jesus. What's it, what's it actually look like to follow Jesus? And so he, he's correcting to the misunderstanding of what the Messiah came to do. So this is what these, these first Christians, they, they got, they, they've decided to follow Jesus and all of a sudden they get Mark's gospel and it's really just saying like, this is what it looks like. Let, let me help you understand what it looks like to be a disciple of his. So last week we saw how following Jesus isn't easy. It's hard. It's worth it. And he gives us the grace and the strength to do it, but it is hard. It's a hard life, a worthwhile life. But a hard life. Here in this chapter, he's going to show us that following Jesus goes beyond outward conformity to certain religious practices. Now, part of the reason that the religious leaders in Jesus' day struggled to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as the coming Messianic King, which is, right, it's, it's somewhat phenomenal because their entire lives were devoted to waiting for the Messianic King. Right? Like this is, it was all about the Messiah who's going to come. They're looking for him. They're looking for him. Looking for him. He shows up and they don't recognize him. But, but here's why. Here's why they struggled so much to recognize him is because they didn't understand their own spiritual condition. They didn't understand their own condition because they had for so long seen obedience to God as an outward activity. And everything was external that they expected a Messiah to come just to fix the outside things. Right? All the problems we have are sort of the outside. We, we do this so the Messiah will come and fix the outward things, particularly in their minds, the Roman oppression and, and sort of Jewish subjugation. They're going to fix all this. And what, what they get with Jesus when he shows up is, is someone who is focused intently on radical heart transformation. And so they don't see this because they don't see their need for it. They're completely unprepared for a Messiah who's going to talk about the heart, not the behavior. So their failure to accurately perceive their own spiritual condition, it caused them to, it prevented them from seeing Jesus as the Messiah. And so here in chapter 7, what we're going to see is that Jesus is showing us that keeping rules is not the way to follow him. 
He'll just start by dismantling this self-righteous system that they've erected around God's commands and then gives us this wonderful picture, beautiful picture of grace. So let's start with the impotence of keeping rules. This is what the, most of the chapters about, the impotence of keeping rules. It begins in verse 1 with a delegation of religious leaders coming to Jerusalem, Jesus from Jerusalem. Like this is, these are not, these are the major league religious players. This is not, this is not spiritual lightweights. They have, they have come to Jesus intentionally to ask him a question, and the question is about his disciples' hand-washing particularly that they don't wash their hands before they eat, verse 2. Now, every time I read this passage, I think of a, a certain far side cartoon. And it's, um, I know it's not spiritual, but it is, it's true. It's what I think of. There's a far side cartoon of a busy restaurant and a man, he's walking out of the restroom into the restaurant and there's a siren above his head, which is flashing because he didn't wash his hands. That'd actually be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? As long as it wasn't you. Like, this is not, their, their concern isn't hygiene. This is about ceremonial washing, about a religious practice. In fact, it says in verse 4 that they washed everything, and it sort of lists cups, pitchers, kettles, dining couches. They, this, is, this is, their concern here is not all hygiene-related. It's that Jesus seems to deliberately ignore all of the traditions that, that, that have been built by them and, and the generations before him and that they feel like they are entrusted to zealously guard, and Jesus is ignoring them. We hear their concern and their question. Look at verse 5. So the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? That's the, that's the issue instead of eating bread with ceremonial and unclean hands. Now, Jesus will answer their question, but he doesn't beat around the bush. He, he doesn't slowly and carefully parse his words. He meets their question with brute force. He knows that they've built this entire system of life on religious rules that govern every little aspect. And he also knows this, that is these rules that are actually roadblocks that are keeping people from following and knowing him. And so his response here and sort of the mini sermon that follows it, it shows what happens when we think that what God is primarily concerned about is our ability to keep his rules. So two things happen, Jesus shows us, when we focus on keeping rules. Here's the first one. When we focus on keeping rules, we create an atmosphere of hypocrisy. We create an atmosphere of hypocrisy. So Jesus is going to quote Isaiah, which is great because they would have known Isaiah and they would have said like, oh, Isaiah, I mean, he's good. He would quote the prophet Isaiah, but he applies it to them, and he just calls them hypocrites. I mean, here's what he's saying. You know that passage in Isaiah that you've read and applied to everyone else? It actually is about you, you hypocrites. Look at verse 6. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you, hypocrites. As is written, these people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching his doctrines, human commands, abandoning the commands of God. You hold on to human tradition. They were focusing on the outside to the exclusion of the inside. So when you focus solely on the outside, your worship is empty and you slowly substitute what God wants for what you think is important. You abandon God's commands in favor of your own carefully crafted set of rules. He calls them hypocrites. This is a term which just means an actor on stage, someone wearing a mask. So so someone who looks one way on the outside, but they're there's someone totally different on the inside. And this is what rule-keeping accomplishes. Rule-keeping is an external activity. Rules have no power to change what a person thinks or what a person loves. 
So think about this. A person can keep a bunch of rules on the outside while not only hating the rules, but hating the person who made the rules. Now in verses 9 through 13, Jesus gives an example to them of their hypocrisy. He says in verse 9, You have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. So one of God's basic commands is to honor your father and mother. Right? Even someone who's not a Christian may have heard that one. Like, yeah, I know, you're supposed to do that. So just a natural application of that. Right? A natural extension of that command is that when your parents get old, and are unable to take care of themselves, that you should help take care of them. That's how one of the ways you honor them. Right? Even though that's expensive, even though they may be cranky, right? you're going to honor them by taking care of them. What if you don't want to spend money on taking care of your parents? What if they're really cranky and you don't just want to spend your energy on taking care of them? Well, you, you can't admit that. Right? You can't say, like, I know I should take care of my parents, but have you been around them? Like, are they expensive? I'd rather spend that money elsewhere. You, like, that sounds really unspiritual. What should you do? Well, here's what you do. You declare that you have devoted all of your money to God. And so instead of spending your money taking care of your parents, you're going to spend your money on what God wants. And th- that's what they were doing, verses 11 and 12. That's what Jesus says. Here's what you've done. Instead of You just said, hey, instead of doing what God wants, I'm going to use my money for what God wants and not do what he wants. Verse 13, he says, under the guise of devotion to God, you're actually completely disregarding what it is God wants you to do. Now, we need to be careful here. We're not anti-rules. Verse 9 refers to God's commands. What is a command? A command is a rule. Verse 13, he warns about nullifying what God has commanded. So the primary issue here is not rules. It's about what we think is accomplished by obeying his rules or obeying his commands. And how a wrong understanding leads us to add more rules around the rules. So a a desire on, on the part of you or the part of the people he's speaking to, a desire to obey God's command, that's a good desire. But, but here's where it starts to go bad, is that sometimes that desire to obey his command leads us to, to build fences around the command, other rules. Right? So there in the center, if you will, of the field is his command, and we're like, I don't want to violate it, so let me build a fence around it. Then after a while, we build another fence, and we build another fence. And at some point, we're so far away from what he wants that we have forgotten what's at the center. And all we're focused on are the fences, R.C. Sproul said it like this. He said, here's the irony. Every time we add to the law of God, we inevitably subtract from it. Because instead of putting our attention on the things that God is concerned about, human regulations cause us to lose sight of what concerns him. We begin to major in minors. We begin to give our devotion to our own traditions, our own human regulations. So let me give you just an example. So Philippians 4.8 It's a command to Christians to think about what is right. So think about what is noble, think about what is pure, what is true, what is good. So I picture a well-meaning Christian, and they say, I only want to think about what is right and good because I care about God's command. Thinking about it, thinking about how to apply it. And so they, they make a little rule, a little fence, and they say, I'm not going to watch any rated R movies. Most rated R movies, we probably all agree, probably not filled with 
things that are noble and true and good, right? So because of that, here's the command, here's the fence, I'm going to put it on there. But what happens over time, if we're not careful, is we start to focus on the fence and not what's inside. And so, so oh man, like God doesn't want me to watch radar movies. So a PG-13 movie comes out, filled with garbage. God doesn't want me to rated R movies. I'm going to watch that rated PG-13 movie. I don't watch rated R movies. But then you hear about another Christian who watched the rated R movie. It was The Passion of the Christ, but it was a rated R movie. And you're like, I can't believe that person would do that. You've, you've lost sight of what God actually wants in favor of your offenses. So the issue here is not rules It's trusting rules to do what they have no power to do. And this is why a focus on rule-keeping breeds hypocrisy. If all I have to do is keep the letter of the law, then I'm fine as long as I find a loophole. Right? So as long as it's not rated R, I can do whatever I want. As long as I've devoted my wealth and resources to God, I don't really have to take care of my aging parents. Now, we see this really clearly often in conversations between parents and their children, right? So, child makes just an obviously bad decision, right? It's just obviously bad. Parent starts talking about them, and the child defends themselves by quoting the parent and saying something like this, well, you never specifically said I couldn't. Like, well, I, I don't have to say you couldn't. Like, that's clearly stupid, shouldn't say that word as a parent. Clearly not a wise decision. That's clearly foolish, right? But they become little lawyers. Like, but you didn't technically say that I couldn't, right? So they violated the parent's will, but they think they found a loophole, which makes it okay. They didn't technically trespass the fence. Now listen, we all do this. It's not just children, with their parents, it's God's children to our Father. We're all hypocrites. And so this is why, brothers and sisters, we need to beg God to show us the areas that we're being hypocritical right now. And we need to invite brothers and sisters in, like you heard Pam talk about, brothers and sisters who have wisdom, not only on God's word, but on our own lives, to say to us, like, why are you doing that? What do you think that's going to accomplish? How does that match up with what you said over here? To help us see our own hypocrisy because all of us will at times and in ways elevate our applications, our traditions, our desires in line with God's word. Listen, the more we focus on outward conformity to standards as the true measure of godliness, the more we create an atmosphere where hypocrisy can flourish. Okay, but there's an even greater problem from an over-reliance on rule-keeping, okay? Here's the second thing. When we focus on keeping rules, we ignore our real problem. We ignore our real problem. So what's our real problem? It's not the food we put in our mouths. It's not putting that food into our mouths with, with unclean hands. See, our problems don't come from the outside in. They come from the inside out. Look what Jesus says in verse 14. He summons the crowd Listen to me, all of you, and understand nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Sin comes from inside us, and no external law, no external rule can change that. And then Jesus elaborates on that in verses 8 and 19 to his disciples, and in doing so, 
Mark adds this little parenthetical comment, like this was a major change to Judaism. Those sort of, some of those Old Testament guidelines God had set up that Jesus was removing those, they were simply there to point to him. Jesus then explains that the real problem for each of us is this. You ready? We have a sinful heart. And all of our sinful behaviors flow out of our sinful hearts. Now he's not saying that our behavior is unimportant. He's not saying that the outside is irrelevant. He's showing that everything that we do on the outside comes from the inside. That behavior always flows out of the heart. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts come, and he lists all these things. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. That covers everything else. All these evil things come from within. They come from within and defile a person. So a couple of summers ago, the transmission on our van went out. It was 2020. Of course it was, right? The year where everything bad happened. So I, I knew something was wrong. I, I was fearful it was the transmission. I tried to drive it to the mechanic, and it didn't, couldn't make it. Eventually there on East Van Street, right, just outside of the Sandberg house, our, the, it was stuck on the side of the road. So I want you to just picture me there, very calm, I'm sure, not at all frustrated, at least in this vision. Um, picture me there, and I, I've got a van here that's not running, and I'm trying to think through how can, I, how can I do something with this van, and I'm also thinking through my abilities as a mechanic. So I started thinking, like, what might I be able to do to fix this? And I say, you know, one thing I've done on our vehicles throughout the years is I've replaced the light bulbs in the headlights and taillights when they go out. So I get Don to drive me to AutoZone, I buy a bunch of head bulbs and I bring them back and I pop them in, new bulbs in every headlight and taillight, and I crank it. Nothing happens. Okay, what, what else can I do? Well, you know, I, I've, I took physics a long time ago and I know it's important for vehicles to be aerodynamic. Our vehicles really, our van's really dirty. So I asked Don, can I borrow a bucket, some water, some soap? And I, I mean, I clean that thing, it looks good, at least as good as an old van can look. Crank it. Still nothing. I've replaced a battery because it's only two things. Get a new battery, put it in, crank it, nothing. And then it hits me. I don't know why I didn't think about this before. The only part of the vehicle which actually touches the road, and since it's sort of starting and stopping a lot, it must be the tires. Right? So I replaced the tires. That is probably where you saw me less, a little more frustrated putting it up on a jack and all four tires, but I replace brand new tires, crank it, nothing happens. Why not? Because we all know, like, the issue with the van is not how it looks. The issue with the van is it's not on the outside. The problem with the van is under the hood. And that's what Jesus is telling us here. Like, your problem is under the hood. Your problem is deeper then you realize, and just cleaning up the outside, trying to make some cosmetic repairs, trying to change the few things that you can figure out, it's not going to fix what's ailing you. Okay, let me ask you, what rule can you put in place to keep yourself from having evil thoughts? I'd like to know. 
And I think if you can figure that out, write a book and donate all the proceeds to our building fund. Won't have, because you're going to be a millionaire if you can figure out the one rule, maybe ten rules, as many rules you need to keep us from having evil thoughts. Okay, what about what policy makes people less greedy? Because this is debated in one sense in Washington, D.C. all the time. There's all these greedy people taking money from other people. Let's just put some new policies in place to fix everything. And, right, it's not working. What tradition would keep you from being proud? So if, if our problem is on the inside, why do we think creating new rules will fix it? Here's why. Because rules are manageable. They're manageable. We can do them. And so therefore, I create a rule, I can do that rule somewhat, and so it makes me feel like I'm taking this serious. Like I'm serious about this. I, see, look what I'm doing to solve it. Rules are something we can control. Rules don't force us to rely upon someone else to deliver us. Rules are a form of self-help. If I just put the right rules in place and then I try really, really hard to keep the rules, even if I don't keep them all the way, then certainly God will see that and he'll, he'll help me. He'll be pleased. He'll understand I'm trying to do my best. I mean, we saw this in our study of Galatians last year. We retreat to rules because rules can be accomplished in our own strength. And that's why a reliance on rule-keeping is actually a denial of the gospel. Like, this is serious. This is the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. So Mark is writing it to these new Christians. What's it mean to follow Jesus? He's getting to it right here. Do you think what God wants are a bunch of good rule-keepers? Like, is this what God has? Jesus died. He rose from the dead. He called you to follow him. Also, you guys would be good rule keepers. Parents, is that what you're trying to produce in your home? I want to make it 18 without being thrown in jail? Graduate high school? Maybe go to college? Maybe get a good job? Like, is this what it all comes down to? And us being here today, it's just one more of those rules we keep so that God will be happy? Or the religious leaders right? See, Jesus is showing us that all the rules in the world are incapable of changing the human heart. Stopping sinful desires with rules is like trying to stop a tornado with an electric fence. See, when everything is calm, that fence seems so powerful. But the moment the wind the evil desires of a heart start to go, that fence is worthless. Now listen, if this passage ended right here in verse 23, this would be really, really hopeless. And maybe that's exactly how you feel. Do you feel hopeless? Is there a sin which on it is just destroying you? And it's not as if you don't care. It's not as if you're like, eh, I don't care. You care deeply and you've tried everything and and it's just, it is just wreaking havoc in your heart. Are you a parent who's like, I, I don't know what else to do? Maybe there's some relationship you have that's so broken and, and you've had hours of therapy. 
Nothing seems to change it. So now I want you to hear this. Feeling hopeless about your ability to change your heart. Feeling hopeless about your ability to change someone else's heart. That's actually not a bad place to be. You see, the account that follows Jesus' interaction here with the religious leaders, it's one of those stories in the Bible that, like, I don't know if we're supposed to say this as Christians, but it makes us feel uncomfortable at first. Troubling. But I think the more you understand it, and particularly as it relates to what we just looked at, this conversation, the more wonderful, the sweeter it becomes. In fact, I've become convinced this week that this is one of the most beautiful stories in all of Scripture. Okay, so we saw in these first 23 verses the impotence of keeping rules, and now I want you to see the power of simple faith. The power of simple faith. Okay, so Jesus, he's had all these interactions. He and the disciples are exhausted. We looked at it a little last week. It's just been constant going, going, going. And so they, they head north outside of Israel for rest, verse 24 tells us. They don't find rest. Instead, a woman finds them who needs help. Look at verse 25. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she was asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, this woman is the opposite of the Jewish leaders that came to Jesus in verse 1. She's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. She's a woman in a culture where women are often marginalized. She's got a child possessed by a demon, and so certainly to all around her, she is a failed parent. She is completely and totally unclean. Her life has not been about keeping all of the rigid rules that come out of Jerusalem. But somehow she's heard about Jesus, and she thinks he can help her. Why does she... A Gentile think he, a Jewish prophet, would help her. You know, maybe she's heard a story. See, there was a woman centuries earlier from her same region of the world, her same area she grew up with. And this woman, too, had a child who was about to die. It wasn't from demon possession. It was just that there was a famine and there was no more food. She was preparing, thinking it was hopeless and nothing could be done to save her child when out of nowhere a Jewish prophet named Elijah showed up at her house and asked to stay with her and kept miraculously providing food so that she and her child would survive. When everything seemed hopeless, the God of Israel provided for a desperate woman and her dying child. Maybe she wondered if he would do it again. Now Jesus answers her repeated request, and that's the sense of this, that she doesn't ask once, that she's asking over and over, cast the demon out of my daughter. Jesus answers with a statement that is troubling. Because you read it, and it feels cold and it feels unloving. Listen to what Jesus says. Let the children be fed first because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I mean, Jesus calls her a dog. That's a derogatory term for Gentiles used by Jewish people. He says, I'm here to feed Israel, not Gentiles. I mean, what's, what's going on here? Right? Why does Jesus seem so cold and condescending to this woman? The way for us to understand what's happening here is we've got to ask a few questions, okay? We've got to read our Bibles well. 
First question, who is hearing this? Well, certainly Jesus and the woman, but they're not alone, right? There are 12 apostles with them who are hearing this. Some think that this is about Jesus testing her faith, and I think that's wrong. Jesus has seen her. Her faith is evident from the moment she shows up. He's not testing her faith. There's, there's, there are people listening to what he says. Here's another question. What is the context? Context is important, right? If you take a statement you make and pull it out of its context, you, it may sound horrible. You'd be like, whoa, wait a sec. You don't understand what's happening. I, right? And so what's the context here? The context is what has just happened with religious leaders. Like this story is here intentionally for us to see That Jesus is setting up a contrast, right? Verse 1, religious leaders come to me. Verse 25, a Gentile woman comes to me. We're contrasting them. What other stories, here's a question, what other stories should we keep in mind? This is the third time in the Gospel of Mark that someone has fallen at Jesus' feet. The first time was a Gentile man possessed by a demon. Well, there's some similarities there, right? And he he comes to Jesus and he falls at Jesus' feet. The second time is an unclean Jewish woman who falls at his feet. So we're supposed to read this story thinking about those stories from chapter 5, which just took place. And what did Jesus do in both of those stories? Jesus touched the unclean person and made them clean. And so if we think that Jesus is just having a bad day and he's rude, we're totally misunderstanding what's happening here. We're supposed to see what he's doing here. And like, of course he'll heal a Gentile. Of course he'll help her daughter. Look what he's done. Here's another question. Who does this sound like? Who does this sound like? If you were to take Jesus' statement and you were to not know who said it, who would you think said it? So here's the base of the statement. The Jewish people are the only important ones, not you Gentiles. Who does that sound like? Sounds like the religious leaders, doesn't it? The ones that he just encountered. So in front of his disciples, Jesus here is giving the answer the Jewish religious leaders would have given with all of their carefully constructed rules. They would have said, God only cares about the Jewish people, not you Gentile dogs. God's only pleased with those who are clean. He's got nothing for you. And she responds to Jesus' statement with a grand theological lecture that the disciples will never forget. She says in verse 28, Lord, even the dogs under the children's table eat the crumbs. You see what she doesn't do? She doesn't dispute that she's a dog. She doesn't convince Jesus that, no, look at what I've done. I'm worthy of you doing this. Here's all of the reasons that that you should help me. She just accepts the label and asks for a crumb. All she needs is one undeserved crumb from Jesus. That's it. That will be enough. In what faith? She's like the bleeding woman who says, if I can just make it through the crowd to touch just the very edge of Jesus' robe, that will be enough. She knows a crumb from Jesus will be sufficient, and she gets it. She gets it. She gets it. 
see rule keeping. The type of rules that would make you look at this woman and say she deserves nothing. This dog deserves nothing. That type of rule keeping fosters pride. And pride keeps us from coming to Jesus. It keeps us from coming to Jesus like the dogs we are. Look at what she does. She throws herself at her master's feet and asks for a crumb. I will go home to the world's best golden retriever named Baxter. And as soon as one of us gets food, you know what he will do? He will throw himself at our feet and he will beg for a crumb. Like she knows that she has a problem so big that she can't fix it and she knows Jesus can fix it. Like, friends, this is what it means to follow Jesus. I want you to listen to how Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes coming to Jesus. And it's a perfect description, I think, of the simple faith of this woman. He wrote this. He said, you are a sinner, a great, desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. I would add a list of rules you've kept. He wants you alone. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. You can dare to be a sinner with Jesus. He already knows. Of course he does. This is why he eats with sinners. He doesn't eat with self-righteous hypocrites. He doesn't eat with rule keepers. He feasts with sinners. Those who have no other hope, those who come and cast themselves at his feet like a dog, asking only for a crumb, but convinced that a crumb from Jesus is worth more than money can buy, that his grace is more powerful than keeping a million rules. How does this story end? How many things do you think this woman would have tried to fix her daughter before she came here? I mean, mothers. Everything, right? She tried everything. And what's it take? It takes simply a statement from Jesus. And what no amount of rule-keeping could have accomplished was accomplished instantly. Jesus tells her, go home. Your daughter's been made whole. All she wanted was a crumb from Jesus, but here's the best part. Jesus doesn't give crumbs. He doesn't give crumbs. We should know this. Because he just fed 5,000 men and with women and children. And how much was left over? 12 heaping baskets. Why? Because Jesus doesn't give crumbs. All we need is a crumb, but he doesn't give crumbs. I mean, look, he gives all of himself so that we can feast with him forever. He doesn't give crumbs. So here, do we rely upon rules because we don't believe Jesus is gracious enough? 
I've got to rely upon rules because I don't know if Jesus will give me a crumb. These accounts back to back illustrate a paradigm shift that we all have to make, but it's really, really hard to do. In fact, it's outside of our power. It's a paradigm shift from rule-keeping to grace. A shift from thinking that God is pleased when I summon enough strength and willpower, when I put in the right habits, when I do all of this so that I can make good decisions. It's a shift away from that to this, that God is pleased when I cast myself at his feet knowing I can do nothing, but that he is gracious enough to feed me. Bonhoeffer wrote that with Jesus You can dare to be a sinner. Can someone dare to be a sinner in our church? Can someone admit their struggles and failures here? So I'm going to admit one. Last week I sat right over there in that chair during the time of confession and was convicted because the day before I had been so sinfully impatient. Is it okay that I admit that? Can we admit here that we're sinners? Can someone dare to be a sinner in your home? Is their confession of sin met with grace and forgiveness or with judgment and condemnation? I mean, that's hard, right? I mean, that's really hard in our homes. Can we admit that as parents that we struggle with a paradigm of grace that we're like, I'm not sure what that looks like? That we're maybe just, just starting to learn it ourselves? Do you want to see change in your life? Do you want to see change in the lives of those around you? Then it starts by admitting your complete and utter inability to fix it. It It begins by admitting your own brokenness and then simply casting yourself at Jesus' feet. Jesus, I need you. Do what I can't. I think some of the clearest theological statements don't come from learned scholars. They come from desperate mothers like this mother. A young child asked her mother one afternoon what God did all day long, and her mom answered, he spends his whole day mending broken things. Like that's our hope, brothers and sisters, and that's our confidence that Jesus spends his whole day mending broken things. Isn't that good news for us who are broken? The more we learn to stop trying to fix everything ourselves with our rules and with our willpower, the more we will see his grace at work mending broken things. We pray with me. Father, we need your grace. We so desperately need your grace and we need to be convinced. I need to be convinced that your grace is, I know it's enough, but I, I struggle with knowing if I'll really get it, which is so silly. You who did not spare your own son, but freely gave him up for me, how will you not with him give us all things, Lord? But yet I think that I will come and you will refuse a crumb when you tell me over and over that you, you have set up a table for me in the presence of my enemies. That you have prepared a feast. So Father, help us. Help us to believe your grace is not only sufficient, but that your grace is free. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.